I encourage you regularly to pray for our nation and for our leaders. Uh, we have, obviously, we have local leaders, we have state leaders, we have our national leadership. Uh, today, we are 10 days away from the next presidential election. And um, we don't talk politics in here. We accept you if you're independent, Republican, Democrat, Baptist, Buddhist, all those things. You can come to this church and find Christ. Okay, But I do say uh, that when you pray, be careful that you're not praying for your team to win. I think I'm preaching to somebody before I get into my message this morning. Uh I pray every Saturday and Sunday, and I would say religiously, because I have a team that plays every Saturday and every Sunday. And I pray that they win, but then I, I realize God doesn't really care all that much about football. Does he care about politics? Well, he cares about leadership. And the Bible is very, very clear that we are to pray for our leaders, whether they're on our team or not. So we prayed, we've prayed since we've been here in this church together, we've prayed for various presidents over the years that we've been here, regardless of whether they hold to every belief that we hold. We pray that God gives them wisdom, that God guides them by his spirit, that they come to find Christ. That's in the local leadership all the way up to the national leadership. Um, I think we're in a tumultuous time in our, in our country right now. And I think that it's important that we pray for things like safety at the polls, uh, for things like that as well. So take a moment each day for the next 10 days and commit to pray for our nation and for the upcoming election. I believe God is pleased when the people of a nation pray to him. In fact, God told his people in the word of God, his people, notice that, that if they would turn from their sin, then he would heal their land. I believe it's possible. You say, pastor, how is one or two people praying for the nation going to make that much of a difference? Well, you don't know my God. Amen. He can make a difference. So pray for our country. Uh, this morning, we're going to jump right into the message. Uh, we've been in a series called I Am over the last several weeks, and we've talked about Jesus' statements in the New Testament, specifically in the book of John. There are recorded statements where Jesus says that he is something. And so we're analyzing those and taking those apart to see what they meant then and what they mean for us now. We've talked about him being the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. Somebody say amen. And there are two more statements that we're going to cover in this series, one of which we'll talk about today. If you want to, you can turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. The title of today's message is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want to give you some immediate context for what we're about to read today so that you understand. How many of you have ever read a passage in the Bible and didn't understand it? <laughs> Right? That's all of us. Okay? Um, and so I want to help you understand before we dive into his statement what was going on. If you read the chapters 12 and 13 before you get to 14, you'll see that Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples. He's come into the city for a feast called Passover. 
This is the moment, even though we're coming towards Christmas, in the scripture, this is the moment that would be called the triumphal entry in chapters 12 and 13, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He's coming there because he's going to spend a few days during this feast with those people, but then he is going to go to his death. And so he's come into the city that's drawn such a big crowd. And then now he's broken away from them and he's talking with his disciples. He's talking with his disciples and he shares a meal with them. And the Bible says something that he does that is so interesting to me. He washes the disciples' feet. Then he starts to talk at this meal about Judas's betrayal and about Peter's denial. That these things are coming. He foretells them. So he's, he's in that conversation and in that context with a few of his disciples there in John 14. When we jump in, it says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. How many of you need that word today? Amen? Let not your heart be troubled. Everywhere God is, there is peace. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I want you to think about it in terms like this. Once a carpenter, always a carpenter. He came to this earth, but he left and he is still preparing a place for those who are coming to join him. That's pretty awesome. So it says there, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas interrupts him in verse 5 and he says, Lord... We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So in response to Thomas's question, how can we know the way? Jesus replies, basically, you do know the way. I am that way. So what did Jesus really mean when he said that he's the way, the truth, and the life? The first thing that's important for us to look at, we're going to look at all three of those individually today. But the first is Jesus is the only way. Jesus used a definite article in scripture. When he spoke, he was using a definite article in his language to distinguish himself as the way. Not a way, but the way, the only way. And we know that a way is a path or a route. And here the disciples seemed a little bit confused about where he was going and how could they follow him. But as he had told them from the beginning, Jesus again is telling them, follow me. Sometimes I think we get down the path, down the way or the journey of our Christian life, and we forget the words of Jesus are so simple. Follow me. That's what he calls us to do even today. 
is to follow him, to trust him and to walk after him. The truth is there's no other path to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to our heavenly father and to eternity with God than through Jesus. In fact, Peter reiterates this and tells this to the leaders in the, in the synagogue in Acts chapter four, verse 12. He says something that it was really, really bold. He says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is telling them the Messiah you've been praying for has come already and he is the one through whom we are saved. So there are not many ways to heaven. My wife's on board with this message. There are not many ways to heaven. Amen. Amen. There is only one way and his name is Jesus. The Bible says that he is God's only begotten son, that he was born to a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he willingly sacrificed his life and died on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day because God chose to love us and provide a way for us so that we would have access back to him. So Jesus truly is the only way. No other religious system or belief in this world can grant you access but Jesus. You say, well, pastor, doesn't that sound a little bit exclusive? Yes, it is. But I think sometimes people, especially maybe people that you've ministered to and shared conversation with at work or your family members, they have this sort of thought in their mind that it is so exclusive and how can that be right and fair and just? But here's what I think we should do is not get caught up in the fact that there's only one way to heaven, but we should celebrate that God has made a way. That he truly has, the Bible says, opened up a door for us which was not there so that we could now have something that bridges that gap. And that, that gap bridger is Jesus Christ himself. But let me say this, and you can use this the next time it comes up in conversation. If you're a believer and you're trying to share your faith with others, I want you to understand this. Christianity is truly the most inclusive of any religion in the world. We should really wrap our minds around that truth. And you say, well, how, how can you say that it's exclusive but inclusive? It's the most inclusive of any sort of thought or religious system in the world. And the way I know that is the Bible says repeatedly, Jesus uttered these words, whoever will... Believe in me. Whoever would come to drink of my water of eternal life, I'll give them life. Whoever chooses me. So we've got to understand that it really is inclusive. He used that phrase, but also all throughout scripture, the phrase shows up and you think, well, you know, the Bible is all about the Jewish people coming to like understand who God is and their journey through. But listen to what the psalmist says. There are, there are little 
peaks or glimpses all throughout scripture that tell us it's all about the all. It's not just about the Jews. Look at what Psalm 86 verse 5 says. The psalmist writes, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to only people who have Jewish blood. <laughs> okay. No, that's, it's, it doesn't say that. It says, in abounding in steadfast love to who? To all who call upon you. Can you imagine being a non-Jew, a Gentile from another place, a different religious system and different values, and coming across maybe the writing or someone shared with you that this was in their scriptures, that all who call upon the name of the Lord, God is good to them, and he forgives them, and he's abounding in steadfast love toward them. This is incredible when you think about it. So yes, Christianity is exclusive, but it's also the most inclusive. And I would say this, it's the least complex. (laughs) I want you to hear me and hear me well this morning. In every religious system and belief outside of Christianity, you must do things to earn, to attain, to gain, to achieve, whatever it is. But with Christianity, we literally, truly have to do nothing but believe in order to become a Christian. And what do we believe in? We believe in a man who is God's son who did everything for us. You say, well, pastor, that, that, is that sugarcoating the gospel message? No, because becoming a Christian is easy. It's staying a Christian that's hard. All right, that was one believer said, yes, Lord, I know what he's talking about. Becoming a Christian is the easy part. God takes us as we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. Amen. Number two, Jesus is the truth. When Jesus says this to Thomas and to those disciples who are gathered there, he says he's the way and he's the truth. Again, Jesus is using a definite article, or you could even think of a superlative. He's not just good, he's the best. Okay, He says, I'm not just true, I am the only truth. He emphasizes this. So our God is not only true, but he's the source of all truth. Psalm 119 verse 142 says that your law is the truth. It says your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is the truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, which thank God that your pastor doesn't preach like Jesus because from what I hear, he was long-winded. <clears throat> it spans several chapters. You get the joke? Okay. All right. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking to the audience who's there, they all have been, um, they've all been raised, born and raised as Jewish people. And so as there are people listening to him, he says to them many times in that passage, in fact, it happened seven or eight different times, that he reminds them of points inside of their law. The law that who gave them? They made up themselves? No, the law that God himself gave to them. And he says this word, this phrase, 
but I say to you. So when I look at this, I understand that he is equating himself with the law of God and with the truth of who God is. He, ha- he is taking an authoritative stand on righteousness and saying, what you received was good, but I say this. In other words, the best has already come. Amen. And his name is Jesus. He's the source of all truth. Matthew chapter 5, he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to just do away with them, but to fulfill them. And I love what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. It says, In the beginning was the Word, capitalized, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God doing just a tiny amount of Bible study in John chapter 1, you can find out in the original language that is a person that they are describing. And that person we understand to be Jesus Christ, God's Son. So consider the outcome of what it would be like if we were to serve and worship a God who wasn't the source of all truth. The truth is he wouldn't be worth serving and worshiping. So it's a good thing that our God is not just true, but that he is the source of all truth. Number three is this. Jesus also says that he is the life. Now, we've talked about this, and I talked about it recently with you, because Jesus mentions this several times in different statements, different I am statements, and here it shows up again. This is the last one that we'll look at, um, the last I am phrase that includes the phrase, the life. But Jesus has really, he didn't seem normal, probably, to his disciples, because he's saying these words, but yet he's been talking about his death. He's saying he is the life, but he's been talking about he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be, uh, there's going to be one of his disciples who denies him. And so Jesus has been talking about his impending death. And here he is claiming to be the source of all life. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus declared that he was going to lay down his life for his sheep. And then that he was going to take it back again. Because When he was doing that or saying that, he was speaking of his authority over life and death that had been granted to him by God. You and I don't have authority over life and death granted to us by God. But Jesus himself does. Later in John chapter 14, we won't go into that passage today, but in verse 19, Jesus says this to them. He says, because I live, you also will live. So there's hope in the midst of this. When we think about him being the way, the truth, and the life, it's really important that we understand that the Jewish people who heard his message and and experienced his ministry while he was here, they kept expecting. The reason why they were disappointed is because they kept expecting that they were going to have a social or a political deliverance. Even his own disciples who ate and slept and traveled and lived 
in the same places as he did, they still didn't understand. It says all throughout scripture that they followed him, but there were still moments that you can see glimpses of their doubt that they didn't quite get it. Like, okay, Jesus, but like, when's it happening? Is it happening today? Cause you came in with the donkey and the people put the coats down and we did all the things. So like, now you're going to kill Herod and we're going to like, right, right. They had it wrong the whole time. Jesus wasn't merely about a political or a social deliverance. He was about a true and genuine deliverance from a life of bondage to sin. Something that has eternal power. That thing has been broken. He can replace leaders in governmental positions. In fact, if you do a little study, God does say in his word that it's him who puts them in power. But let me not get back into that. Let me go back over here. Um, Jesus is the one who's bringing life where there was death. He wants to provide a deliverance to us that is not just a new job with a better paycheck to deliver us from our bill. He wants to deliver us from a life of bondage to sin that would cause us to go somewhere else besides his presence for eternity. He wants to set us free. And the only way he, he, the only way we can experience this freedom is if we turn to him. But you know, there's a common thread that's woven between these three different things, between the way, the truth, and the life. And I, I believe that there's something that if you're looking for it, you can definitely spot it pretty easily. It's the love of God. Because God is love, he's provided the way for you. Think about this. Because God is love, he is truth. And the source of all that is true, all truth. And because God is love, he is the life that each of us need, the eternal life with him. This is not just a character trait of God's. This is actually the description of who he is. So we've been hearing Jesus say, I am, I am, I am. And in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 7, throughout that passage, it says that God is love. Not that he just loves, but that he is love. It's his nature. It's who he is. If someone had to ask me to say, hey, would you describe your friend Meg? I would tell them some things about Meg. I would include funny, friendly, uh, those kinds of things. But she is more than that because I'm only narrowing down on one character trait or two character traits. This is important that God is love. That means everything he is and what he does for you is motivated by love. Aren't you glad? And God's love for us is different than the love that we express for others. I've been to many weddings and I've done weddings. And we share scripture verses and passages about the love that's shared between a husband and a wife. And how that's representative of something from God and something from heaven. 
But even that love, the deepest human to human love, we have newlyweds with us. They've been married for a short time. Even that love is nothing in comparison to the love of God. John chapter three, verse 16. I want you to keep like, don't zone out right now. Keep on track with me because I know you probably could recite this verse, but I want you to hear it now, understanding what we're talking about today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever, do you see that? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In other words, God didn't send his son into the world to just simply judge it and say, yeah, you're bad. But in order that the world might actually be saved through him, it's because God is love. I want to give you an analogy, just using everyday language. My daughters, uh, sometime recently, it might have been this week, we were having a conversation around the dinner table. And um, my youngest said something about, you know, the English language is hard. <laughs> we might have corrected her on something that she said or whatever. Um, and she just came out with that. And I thought, yeah, you're right. Because we say the same word for, and it means 72 different things, you know. And I'm sure there are other issues with other languages, but this is a good one for us to think about. It's everyday language. You know, the word of God says that God is good. And we say, because it's like a Christianese, that's like language for Christians, all the time. God is good all the time. It's true. He is but he's not good like the churro cheesecake that I made this week in my house. Okay. He's better than that. Do you see where I'm headed with this? So it's kind of like, you know, if one of you were to say, pastor Dexter, I hear you like to shoot guns and go to the gun range. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Are you a good shot? The question comes, well, yeah, I'm a good shot. I mean, I, I hit targets pretty much on, and there are a few misses every single visit that I have, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a good shot. Now, if you bumped into somebody who was at Bass Pro, and they were shopping at the gun counter, and he's talking about guns, and you look at him and say, hey, are you a good shot? And Yeah, I'm, I'm a good shot. And then you overhear a, an employee talking about the fact that he's been in the military and that he has a confirmed combat kill from 2,500 yards. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm a good shot. That's the same word, but it means something vastly different. Okay? So, yes, I'm a good shot and he's a good shot, but he's a good shot. Okay, some of you may have never shot a gun. You may disagree with me having a gun. So I'm going to move on to a different analogy. How about this one? Pastor Dexter, I love you. Well, I love you too. Then you overhear me say to my wife while we're sitting on the couch, sweetheart, I love you. Hello? I love her, but I just love you. Aren't you glad that I love you? I love you and you love me. I feel that. But that love, there's a different level or depth of meaning to it. And some of you are like, I'm glad you don't love me like you love Amy. So here we go. This is the thought, okay? <laughs> that was just for you. Here's the thought. 
I want you to think about this for a moment. When I say that God loves you, I mean it on a whole nother dimension, in a whole different depth of meaning. Because when I say I love Amy or I love Mark or I love Andrew, there's different depths there and it's dependent on who I'm referring to. But when it says that God so loved the world, he loved the whole thing. He loved the, the voodoo witch doctor in the far off village. He loves the serial killer. He, he loves the person who hurts their spouse or family. He loves everyone. His love is so much different than anything we have here on earth. Let me take it a step further. If I said that I I love you and you reject my love, I'll be sad. How many of you that happened in high school? (laughs) I'm the only one that raised my hand. Oh, we're not an honest church. We need to be an honest church. I'll tell you just this little snippet of my life. Uh, head over heels in love with this girl in high school. Went, the, I mean, I went all in. Like prom's coming up and I'm going to order flowers, get them delivered to the school, have them show up in the classroom, all the things. Uh, that woman is not my wife. Okay, she's married, has kids somewhere else now. Uh, we did go to the prom together, but really all I got was a, uh, thanks. My heart was crushed. Not just days, but weeks. My heart was crushed. Because here's the truth. In that moment, I expressed love and it wasn't returned to me. And I lost something. I'm so glad I found something better. But if I say I love you and you reject me, it's because, and then I'm sad, it's because I've lost something. When God loves you, And you reject him, he's sad too, not because he lost something, but because you are losing something. That's that's a kind of love that's literally out of this world. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept two times. It's recorded that he wept two different times in scripture. We talked about this last week in the context of Lazarus and how Jesus, the Bible says in John chapter 11, that Jesus wept at the, at the tomb of Lazarus. And I began thinking about that in the context of God's love. And I shared a little snippet of it last week, but let me fully give it to you today. Jesus wept that day, not because he had lost his friend Lazarus, And because he wasn't going to see him again, he wept that day. He was sad that day because he saw the grief of what Mary and Martha were enduring because they had lost something. The other place that's recorded in scripture where Jesus cries, where he weeps, is found in Luke chapter 19. The Bible says that Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and it says that he then found himself in a place where he could pray and it says that he wept over the city of Jerusalem, that his heart was broken for the city. 
It's not because he was losing that city. It's not because he was about to die and go to the cross. It's because they were losing something. In fact, the word of God in Luke 19 tells us that he talked about how they had killed the prophets that had come before him and how they rejected even him. And they were missing out the day of visitation while the son of God was in their midst. And it broke his heart to know that they were missing out, that they had lost something. God loves you with a love that cannot be compared to anything that we have on this planet. And because of his great love for us, he sent his son to become the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to stand with me today. The question I'm going to ask you is this, have you decided to follow Jesus? Today you can. And as I said earlier, it is absolutely easy to become a Christian, believing that he is the son of God, that he lived, died, and lives again now for you is what you need to do. Then confess your sins and make him the Lord and Savior of your life. I've met many people who have made him the Savior, but not yet allowed him to be the Lord. But it's it's simple as that. But my other question is really for those who are believers. Maybe today you're at a place where you're complacent in your walk with the Lord, in your relationship with him. Today, you can make that change. You can reach out to him and say to him afresh and anew, God, I really do believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I'm struggling in this area of my life, but I I need you to help me. I think in this last song, we, we should declare our love for the Lord, even though it doesn't compare to the love he has for us. And maybe just soak in his presence for a few moments and let him supernaturally express his love to you. Close your eyes with me and bow your heads. Holy Spirit, we pray at the end of almost every service. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I pray that each one of us individually would make that prayer a genuine prayer in our heart today. And Lord, that what you've spoken through the message, it's hit different ways for different hearts that are hearing this. God, I pray that you would help us to truly grasp a hold of the truth, that you are the only way, the truth, and the life, and help us to live a life that shows and demonstrates that. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Let's worship the Lord.